Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us to become better stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us. Now, regular listeners to the podcast know that uh, these midweek Ministry Watch extra episodes are opportunities for us to kind of go deep, you might say, with uh, some of our editorial partners. And today I'm pleased to bring back to the program Michael Renault. Michael is the editor of World Magazine. He came to World after a successful tenure as an award-winning editor at the Greenville News, a daily newspaper in East Tennessee. Michael, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Warren. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's uh, great to chat again. It's been a while. It's been almost two months since we were able to have this chat, and there's been a lot that has happened at, uh, in the world and at World Magazine, uh, and we're going to jump right into some of those stories. One of them is a cover story that Sophia Lee did on uh, so-called exvangelicals. Um, first of all, can you define for us what an exvangelical is? Sure, Warren. It's a term that's um, gotten used widely in the, in the last few years, and uh, it was coined by Blake Chastain, uh, who has a podcast, I believe, by that name. And um, basically, his definition of an ex-evangelical is um, someone who has come out of evangelical Christianity, and a, a lot of times ex-evangelicals disavow their Christian faith altogether. Sometimes um, they espouse a much more liberal uh, faith or espouse a much more liberal theology. Um, and a lot of times, so-called ex-evangelicals end up taking pretty hard stances against evangelical Christianity or, or Christianity in general sometimes. Um, and it, it seems like we go through some stages, Warren, where there are a lot of ex-evangelicals who end up making news and grabbing headlines. Probably one of the biggest Examples of that was uh, Joshua Harris, who wrote the very popular book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, two or three years ago, he announced that um, he no longer considered himself a Christian. There have been uh, a, a lot of musicians who have come out and done the same thing. Um, recently, one of the members of DC Talk from back in the 90s and 2000s um, essentially said the same thing. And um, so Sophia had been working on a story that... Um, I mean, they have they have platforms, they have mouthpieces to which they can get their side of the story out on. So it's not like we wanted to give them an opportunity to say what they wanted to say. But as we kind of get bombarded with stories about you know these so-called ex-evangelicals walking away from the faith and then coming out and and attacking evangelical Christianity or, or Christians, um, we wanted to try to dig into. What, how Christians can be interacting with them, how Christians can be interacting with their neighbors, and if there's any hopefulness to take away from from the situation. So that was kind of the jumping off point for the story that Sophia did. Yeah, and you know, I've got my own thoughts about the ex-evangelical movement, which uh, we, if we've got time, I may share. But before I do that, let's look at um, Sophia's story a little bit more deeply. As, as you said, uh, uh, her story is really about how to interact with ex-evangelicals, and she profiled several, including one who eventually did come back to the faith uh, and uh, now actually works for an evangelical organization. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, Sophia kind of bookended her story. She led off the story and ended the story with telling uh, Andrea Palpant Dilly's um, story. And Dilly grew up in the mission field um, 
in Africa and had experienced a lot of gut-wrenching things. And when we talk about the problem of evil, the so, you know, and that's one of these phrases that I think evangelical Christians, um, you know, we all kind of throw around a lot, but the problem of evil um, gets thrown around a lot. And she saw it firsthand on the mission field and experienced, um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll let folks go and read Sophia's story, but experienced tough stuff um, and as she got older and um, came back to the States, uh, was really wrestling with not so much whether God exists, but why a good God would allow such horrible things to happen in his creation. And she went through several years of just kind of wandering, but never really letting go of these big um, ultimate questions, as a mutual friend of yours and mine, John Stone Street at the Colson Center might say, Warren, and she eventually did come back to the faith. And as you said, she she's now an editor with Christianity Today. But she used a phrase that um, actually gave us the idea for the headline we ran with this story. Um, and she talked about conversations she had with her dad as a little girl. And these conversations were, were um, times of kind of freedom, I guess you could say, she could ask hard questions to her dad. And her dad never shied away from the difficult, sticky questions she was asking. And she said this, uh, you know, I, I'm a dad of four kids, including a little girl myself. So it, it it really grabbed hold of me. But she set this scene about having waffles with her dad and having these conversations about big problems. And those conversations with her dad kind of became anchors for her that as she she walked away from Christianity, she walked away from her faith, but continued to struggle with some of these same questions. And as she did so, she began reengaging with the church, which I think is an important component here, she re-engaged in regular worship um, with the church. Uh, but those conversations with her father and some of the other examples of Christians doing hard work and hard circumstances and um, trusting God despite those circumstances were the anchors that that uh, kind of held her to. It's what she was more to as she was struggling. And I think that's the example, right? Um Sophia talked to a couple others whose interactions with Christians at times when they were questioning and, and having a hard time, um, their interactions with with other Christians, at least in this story, weren't so free, I guess you could say. Uh, they were discouraged from asking certain questions or looking like they were struggling with things or, um, uh, you know, one situation, there were some real deep issues that just kind of got glossed over. And so I think that the takeaway, the lesson for us is... Um, the, the scriptures are, are not neat and tidy. The scriptures present us with messy situations. And so we're doing a disservice to our brothers and sisters, and also we're doing a disservice to our neighbors who don't believe in the gospel when we want to try to make everything very neat and tidy and easy, because the scriptures themselves are not easy to, to take in. So what that means is we can engage, we can allow folks to ask hard questions and try to answer those as best we can using um, using the Word, using what God has given us. But it was those examples of, of people engaging with her that really seemed to make the difference for Dilly. And it was a slow, abiding, um, kind of quiet thing that worked underneath the surface as she, as she 
um, struggled with some of those questions and into her adulthood. Well, yeah, I thought it was a really fascinating story. And, you know, as I said earlier, I've got my own uh, opinions about uh, evangelical, ex-evangelical, shall we say. Uh, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I am very sensitive to the argument that, you know, we evangelicals are hypocrites. Um, we, we often do not behave in ways that conform with our, the, our highest aspirations and with biblical standards. So when people look use um, evangelicals of being hypocrites, I, you know, often will say, listen, guilty as charged. In fact, I've written two books, one called Faith-Based Fraud and another one called A Lover's Quarrel with the Evangelical Church that I think shows a lot of um, uh, sympathy and empathy for those who have troubles with the evangelical church. I think the thing that frustrates me, though, about the whole ex-evangelical movement, uh, Michael, is that uh, it's become, in some ways, kind of a celebrity movement. You mentioned Joshua Harris, for example, and he has, um, you know, kind of traded one form of of uh, hypocrisy, the hypocrisy that he saw in the evangelicalism and the celebrityhood and the trafficking on celebrity uh, that he saw there with, if I may put it this way, another form of celebrityhood and another uh, form of platform building that um, that I find um, in some ways no different than the one he left behind. I also, um, you know, am really aware that other worldview, the problem of evil, for example, uh, the problem of suffering, the problem of pain that many people um use as their excuse for abandoning Christianity is a problem that exists for other worldviews as well. Other worldviews have to answer that question too, and they can't. Uh, Christianity has the best answers to those questions, and I think that sometimes that reality uh, gets left behind. Sure. Well, you know, when I'm interested in your take on this, I don't mean to equate the evangelical movement with what we're seeing on the transgender stuff. Um, they're, they're two different things. However, one similarity, I think, is that we see so much, you know, so many, so many young kids and teens and their parents jumping on, you know, if their kid's transgender, if their kid has gender dysphoria, whatever, it feels very much just like a fad. Um, and these are big worldview questions people are, are trying to wrestle with, I guess, but the transgenders, I'm not trying to minimize people who have real deep struggles, but there's just a sense in which all this kind of feels like a big fad right now too. And in 10 years, we're probably going to look back and go, what in the world were we doing? And so I wonder if the ex-evangelical movement too, you know, I guess it's this goes back to what you're saying about trading one form of celebrity for another. If there's, if this too is somewhat of a fad among Christian um, celebrities, I guess, uh, it, it just seems like, again, when these things pop up, they, they pop up in clumps, two, three, four, five people at a time will you know, have these big announcements and revelations and they get, you know, more Instagram followers and they their platform expands and, and, and that kind of thing. So I don't want to be cynical about the whole thing because I don't think that the folks Sophia talked to are are cynical um, in their struggles, but there is an element to that that I think uh, it's it's worth paying attention to as well. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there's a, a bit of a bandwagon effect going on, especially with Twitter and Facebook and the hashtag exvangelical that you can find there. You know, there's a there was a fascinating book written by my friend Jim Spiegel um, 
called The Making of an Atheist then, uh, that came out probably seven or eight years ago now. And one of the things in that book that I found really fascinating was uh, his the point that he made that a lot of times uh, people leave the faith because of sin in their own life. They can't reconcile their sexual promiscuity or uh, their or some other uh, sin with the Christian faith, and it becomes easier for them to jettison the Christian faith than it does for them to you know deal with the sin issues because sin sin especially sexual sin can be a real struggle, and then later it becomes. Uh, after the fact that they say the reason they left the faith was because of the hypocrisy of evangelicals or the problem of evil or some other um, kind of excuse or reason or explanation. But in fact, it was their unwillingness uh, to uh, reconcile their own uh, sinful behavior with the uh, standards that are set forth in Scripture. Uh, anyway, I, I, that's not the kid, true for everyone. I don't mean to paint everyone with the same cloth, but I would recommend uh, that book, The Ma- Making of an Atheist by James Spiegel, to anyone who is struggling with these issues and or has someone in their life who is struggling with these issues. So, you know, Michael, I, I could talk about this stuff all day long. You and I both come out of sort of the apologetics worldview world, and so it's. <laughs> I know that for both of us, this is a fascinating story. But uh, can I move on and go on to the next story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let me just pivot a bit in our conversation and talk about a fascinating story that uh, Sharon Deerberger uh, did uh, on Minneapolis in the post-George Floyd era. Of course, we just uh, had the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd and and the Black Lives Matter and uh, movement, and George Floyd has been uh, in the news for most of the past year, so it was a kind of a great time for her to kind of look at Minneapolis and to see what has happened there. What did she discover? Well, Sharon lives uh, nearby. Sharon lives in the Twin Cities area and has done really good reporting for us out of Minneapolis uh, ever since uh, George Floyd's death in 2020. And a lot of her reporting has been focused on looking at what churches in Minneapolis and St. Paul are doing to try to um, be peacemakers, right? Um to try to love their cities and love their neighbors well, um, and for brothers and sisters across denominational lines or congregational lines, and certainly across racial lines, um, to try to to try to foster peace in their city instead of so much of the destruction that we've seen over the last year. And this story was a little bit different um, from Sharon's previous reporting because instead of focusing solely on Christians and churches, they're doing the work. Um, Sharon went into the neighborhood near George Floyd Square, um, several a several square block area that since George Floyd's death, the city of Minneapolis has cordoned off with uh, big concrete, you know, construction barriers, things you'd see on construction sites. And so that's closed off the businesses in the area to uh, motor vehicle traffic. It's created a a space where um, demonstrators and protesters meet a couple of times a day and have 24 demands they want to see uh, the city of Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota meet. And 
Some of those look like um, grants or, or tax incentives to businesses in the area around George Floyd Square. Some of it includes, you know, what kind of memorial should be there for George Floyd. Um, some of it goes to uh, prosecuting um, certain cases that still have not made their way through the justice system um, that involve um, that involve black people. They called for the resignation or the sacking of the um, attorney general there, the district attorney general um, in the Minneapolis area. And so it's a pretty, uh, it, I mean, it's a pretty exhaustive set of demands. But basically, uh, the demonstrators are meeting there a couple of times a day inside this blocked off area. Meanwhile, business owners and residents in the neighborhood say, police are slow to respond to anything that goes on in that area. In Minneapolis, just like so many other cities, and last year crime has spiked, violent crime has spiked, shootings have gone way, way up, and yet in this area, police are, and first responders are slow to respond when when things go wrong. And so Sharon spent time talking with, again, the residents who live there, business owners there, and she spent time talking with demonstrators too um, about what's going on, and Basically, the city of Minneapolis has just completely failed, I think is it's fair to say, in figuring out what's going to happen in this area and how do these residents and businesses move on. Um, a lot of the residents who live there say that the folks who are showing up to demonstrate are um, – it's a whole lot of young white folks, which is what we've seen in, in some other parts of the country too. And they're folks who have moved into that area or some may not even live there. Um, the demonstrators, on the other hand, say, no, we live here. We're, you know, this is our neighborhood. This is our community. Um, it's not clear how long they've lived there. Um, and so what you've got is this stalemate, this situation where uh, the city of Minneapolis has not been clear about how things are going to move forward, whether things are going to move forward. And the resident, the folks who live there and the folks who have businesses there are just struggling to get by. I mean, there's a lot that's withering on the vine as people disagree about how to move on and move forward. And I, I should stress too, the folks that Sharon spoke with are not people who say we should forget about George Floyd or, you know, Derek Chauvin didn't, it was a miscarriage of justice for Chauvin to get, con they're not saying that at all. The folks Sharon spoke with even say there should be a memorial, but let's figure out a way to move forward. We can put a memorial somewhere if we want to. We can open this sector of the city back up and try to move forward um, and not just plant here and mark time uh, in perpetuity. Well, that's Minneapolis. You had a, another story on recently on Seattle and Portland. Seattle and Portland are cities that uh, famously are are liberal and progressive, and um, some some of our viewers or listeners rather might know the the comedy show Portlandia on streaming services, which kind of makes fun of the uh, progressivism of. Um, of Portland, but Sophia Lee um, went to Portland and did an article and found that they had some of the same kinds of problems that Minneapolis and other cities around the country have. Yeah, that's right. Sophia was traveling in the Pacific Northwest um, to put together what you and I have talked about before is some of our favorite coverage all year, our Hope Awards reporting. Um, she was traveling in this region with Bonnie Pritchett, who's a correspondent for our podcast, The World and Everything in It. And Bonnie did a companion piece for that podcast, if, if your listeners want to check that out. But while while doing reporting on Hope Awards up in Portland and Seattle and, and those areas, yeah, they, they did stop in and 
Hey, try to take a similar look in a way similar Sharon did, similar to what Sharon did in Minneapolis, rather, uh, to look at how Portland and Seattle are getting along a year later. And, and Sophia found a lot of similarities. One thing that um, we underscored in her reporting this story that's a little bit different, there are a lot of churches in Portland and Seattle that saw opportunities for Christians to have um, some meaningful conversations about racial reconciliation, which is, a, you know, a, another one of those cliches or terms that we throw around a lot. And we don't always think about what that means. But the, after George Floyd's death and so much attention was uh, cast on on his situation, also a Mont Arbery in Georgia last year, which took place before George Floyd's death, um, the Breonna Taylor situation. Um, these congregations, and some of them are pre- predominantly black, and some of these are, are multi-ethnic or multicultural churches, saw a lot of opportunities for meaningful conversation and for Christians to start talking about some of these issues in ways that they maybe haven't in the past, at least in, in these congregations or these areas. And unfortunately, what happened is you've got the situation in Portland is well known and Portland the situation in Seattle with the, the chop the occupied area last year is well known all the attention and all the circus like atmosphere for both those situations kind of just sucked the oxygen out of those conversations that those churches felt like they were making real traction on and the destruction and the rioting um, became such an issue in the news and such an issue in you know relatively small pockets of those cities that those churches said that some of those conversations they were excited about having just stopped. Sophia also talked to a woman in Seattle who um, she's a, a a black woman who um, recounted for us some negative experiences she's had with the police, but she leads a community group that tries to foster better relations between the the community itself and the police department there in Seattle. And she says similar things to the churches in that there was there was traction, there were opportunities to move the ball forward on improving relations. And now that seems to have um, really gotten held up by all the stuff we've seen in the in the last year on the news. And so Sophia's story looks at barriers of a different sort, but, are, but that are similar to what's happening in Minneapolis, where there are opportunities to move forward and to um, maybe bring about some peace in certain situations. But all the um, showmanship or all the destruction and chaos that we've seen play out really ends up stymieing those efforts. Yeah. Well, Michael, we've got to move on, but I do recommend that story strongly. Uh, one final story that I want to talk about before uh, we bring our time together to a close is a story uh, about uh, what's going on in the southern border. I mean, we've been, both you and I have been covering that um, situation for years. I know at Ministry Watch, we've done 25 stories uh, that relate to immigration just in the past year and a half um, because a lot of Christian ministries are involved down at the southern border. Um, but I was really impressed to find out that you guys have found yet another angle to talk about. Uh, and that is uh, the story that Esther Eaton did on trans-border education. Very quickly, Michael, can you summarize that story for us? Sure. Esther is a uh, a young and talented and skilled reporter who, um, when she when she gets a hold of a story, she doesn't want to let go of it. And um, this story happened because she got wind of situations where students from Mexico were crossing the border into the U.S. to go to school. And these are both college-age students 
and K through 12 students too, different parts of the country, some in California, some in New Mexico. Um, but yeah, Warren, to your point, I think a lot of us don't realize how much this happens. This was going on before COVID-19. These students most times are American citizens, and sometimes their parents are American citizens, sometimes they're not. But they live across the border in Mexico because – um, because of their parents' citizenship status, or sometimes because it's just cheaper to live in Mexico than it is to live in the United States, even if you're a citizen of the U.S. And so they cross the border every day. There are certain protocols that um, border agents have put in place to facilitate that and make it easier. But just like everything else in the last year, COVID-19 made that whole process a lot more difficult for these students. Um, and on the one hand, you know, COVID-19 made all border crossings, made education in general more difficult. Um, just like students uh, who live in the United States, students who live in Mexico but attend school in the U.S. had to figure out how to get reliable Internet access to do um, remote schooling. And in Mexico, that's that's sometimes easier said than done. So school districts had to kind of jump over some of those hurdles. One positive thing is that um, students who live in Mexico who don't normally participate in some of the after-school programs that a lot of schools put on uh, actually were able to participate because they were held remotely, because they were they were able to Zoom them in or whatever um, technology they were using. They're able to get those students engaged in certain ways that they, they weren't engaged in before. And so education officials, teachers, administrators, they're optimistic about um, – possibilities moving forward for further engagement for those students. But I mean, that particular section of our of our magazine, Warren, as you are well aware of, uh, the notebook section is a place where we try to surprise readers with um, stories they may not be aware of, introducing the people they may not meet otherwise, take them to places they, they may not go. And Esther did a great job with this piece and finding a story like that, that uh, not a whole lot of media outlets are covering. And um, hopefully introducing these students and and their plight to our readers um, and making them aware of of something they may not have heard about before. Yeah, exactly right. It was a it was a great story and um, was uh, really uh, impressed by Esther's reporting and kind of her take and her angle on it. Michael, we've run out of time. I did want to cover one more story that we're not going to have time to cover, but I'm going to mention it just because uh, I love Angela. Angela Lou Fulton is someone that. Uh, writes for World, and I've known her for since really before she went to work for World, whenever she was uh, still kind of uh, doing an internship with World. And um, she has um, written a fascinating article about giving birth in uh, China. And um, so it's, um, it's a story called Life in the Motherhood Suite. Uh, congratulations to Angela for the birth of her son, Miles, and uh, really would recommend that all of our listeners check out that story because not only is it a personal story, but it also takes a look at the way um, that um, motherhood, especially those early days, weeks, and months of motherhood, are um, culturally different. Uh, in that part of the world versus the United States. So, Michael, we don't have time to talk about that story, but I just wanted to mention it to our listeners and recommend it and just wanted to say once again, thank you so much for being on the program today. It's great to have these once a month or once every six weeks chats with you to get kind of up to speed on what you guys are covering at World. My pleasure, Warren. Always appreciate being with you. 
Well, you bet. It's my pleasure. And they also do it from a Christian worldview perspective, which, of course, I value and I know our listeners value a great deal. To find out more about World Magazine and the stories that we discussed today, uh, go to the website of World News Group, which is WNG.org. And you can not only read what's in the magazine, but also on the various podcasts and Uh, World has also got some new video offerings as well, so check those out. To find out more about Ministry Watch, of course, you can go to our website, ministrywatch.com. I'd like to mention that both World and Ministry Watch are coming up on our fiscal year ends, June 30th. We here at Ministry Watch depend on your financial support to do what we do. We don't take money from the ministries we cover, and we don't accept advertising or sponsorship dollars. We're 100% donor-supported. If you'd like to help us out financially, you can go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. Your contribution before June 30th will help us finish this fiscal year in a strong position. Also, I want to mention that even if you don't or can't make a financial donation, there's still lots of things that you can do to help us out. Uh, One of which is to pray for us. Pray that we would remain faithful as we cover tough stories uh, in the ministry world. Another is to uh, rate us on our podcast app. Uh, The more ratings we get, the better the program performs with search engines. A rating doesn't cost you a dime, and it really does help us out a lot. The producers for today's program are Rich Roslin and Steve Gandy, and we get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. Thanks to Sophia Lee, Sharon Derberger, and Angela Lou Fulton of World for providing material that Michael and I were able to have uh, a conversation about today. I'm Warren Smith, and along with my guest today, World's Editor Michael Renault, you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time. May God bless you.